This is a Clark University podcast. So I actually think the challenge right now is how do we hold space for those feelings of wonder and curiosity and creativity in the midst of all of these things that are happening to us? One of the epigraphs of the book is my mother saying people need to know that the universe is bigger than the bad things that are happening to them. And that is always going to be true, and that's actually particularly true right now. The universe is, in fact, bigger than those things. And part of what we are fighting for is to preserve our capacity to spend time thinking about that bigger universe. That's part of the struggle, and that's part of what we struggle for. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, Associate Professor of Physics and Astronomy and core faculty in Women's and Gender Studies at the University of New Hampshire, just visited Clark to deliver a presidential lecture about physics and Black feminist science. At a round table in Clark's Data Commons building, we had the honor of recording Shonda as she gathered with a group of students studying the sciences. Chanda's love of the universe was palpable as she spoke about her journey from childhood in East LA to her position as a leading physicist entrenched in the latest theories of dark matter. Chanda explores these themes in her book, The Disordered Cosmos, a journey into dark matter, space-time, and dreams deferred. Chanda explained the intersection of theoretical physics and black feminist science. You know, it's interesting, when I first started thinking about some of the questions of the sociology of race and physics and the sociology of gender and physics and astronomy, which was kind of my entry point, my advisors in physics felt very threatened by me spending time on those sorts of things. And I think that what they didn't envision was the possibility that actually it could inform the way that I do my scientific scholarship. And so actually, I learned a better way of being a physics reader from being a black studies reader, from being a humanities reader. There's certainly a feedback loop where they come to inform each other in a a productive way. And I think I'm a better scientist for it. And I think I'm a better teacher for it because I also now think more proactively than I think any of my mentors did. I'm Melissa Hansen, a producer in Clark's communications office, and this is Challenge Change. This episode is a condensed version of Chanda's conversation with students, recorded just an hour before she delivered a lively presidential lecture in Tilton Hall. The conversation was moderated by Clark's Betsy Wong, Associate Provost and Dean of the College, and Esther Jones, Associate Provost for Faculty Affairs. Here's Esther. This notion that your advisors in physics and science and mathematical classes regarded your concerns with the social and the political as threatening. I find that really interesting because frequently when you think about diversity, equity, inclusion matters in science and math, you know, there's this notion that these are race neutral, gender neutral, identity politics neutral zones, right? That it, 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 math is math and computing is computing. And there's really nothing to see here. So how do we even think about diversity, embodiment, racialization, politics, sociology of all of that in science? And so 
I, I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit about how one might navigate that. Because I think your book beautifully kind of it textures and, and layers in the ways that absolutely all of these things matter. So I think there's a, a narrative that's certainly popular in the media right now that, for example, we professors are indoctrinating students, right? And this narrative is particularly strong about those of us affiliated with black studies, Africana studies, women's and gender studies, sexuality studies. Um, and I will say that if I was indoctrinated in some way, the first thing that happened was I was indoctrinated into this idea that science was free of gender and race considerations. That's what I was socialized into from birth, right? Then I think the second indoctrination was actually being confronted with how not true that was. Not because people were feeding me information and giving me books and telling me it was going to be bad, but because I was literally having bad experiences and was trying to navigate them. I did my PhD at the University of Waterloo in Southern Ontario in Canada. Um, I worked at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics, but I was enrolled at the University of Waterloo. And when I arrived at Waterloo, the engineering school had an annual slave auction as a fundraiser. And I was shocked. I mean, this was one of, this was also a learning moment for me as a black American crossing the border because we had all these narratives about Canada mm -hmm. and race. Yeah. And I would say my, my takeaway is that it's half dozen on one and six on the other. <laughs> it's, it's, I heard racial slurs on that side of the border that Americans don't even use anymore, right? Mm. And so, so there was mm. that element. But they had the slave auction and I was completely stunned. So I made some comments to the press about how deeply offensive this was because of the, the legacy of racism and slavery in North America. And I got so many angry emails from undergraduates who were like, you don't understand our traditions. You're not a Canadian. It was very, I mean, the, there was a xenophobic thread to it, but there was also this piece of it that they believed the indoctrination that Canada was different and that Canada didn't have problems with race and that Canada was just the end of the Underground Railroad and did not have its own legacy with slavery. There was a European postdoc and he had done his PhD at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So he had some familiarity with American context and specifically the black southern context because he had been around it. He said to me, you black people just need to get over slavery. It was a long time ago. Um, and I looked, I was so stunned and I was so afraid because this was a person who was more powerful than me. And I was at that point supposed to be working on a research project with him. And so I sat there kind of trying to decide what do I say. I tried to push back a little bit, but I was afraid. And I chose mostly silence in that moment. And I went to my PhD advisor and said, you need to talk to him and tell him to apologize to me. And he was like, "I look, you're a black woman. These things are going to happen to you. And you have to get used to it. And so I will say that that was part of the scientific dynamic there, which was you're supposed to swallow racism because you're black. Um, that the expectation was you have to get used to it if you want to get along in this field, as opposed to I will fight for you so that you can get along in this field, which was a very different message. This story made one student curious about how Chanda's position as an outsider impacted her academic journey. Here's Isaac. Now that you're, uh, you've, you've achieved tenure, 
Looking back into your career, would you say there was a moment where you felt like um, kind of being the underdog played in your favor? So I think that there were certain rules that I just didn't feel beholden to because I knew that they didn't care for me. And I think there's kind of a liberation that comes with that. And so I do think having that outsider's perspective was, was valuable because I got used to being unique, being independent, being the outsider, and not going along with the crowd. And I do think that that has served me intellectually. I, the, within my actual research field in, in dark matter physics, one of the things I'm best known for, which I'm not going to explain at all, so everyone's just going to take this on face value. <laughs> One of the things that I'm best known for is exploring how the self-interaction of the axion actually shapes how dark matter halos are structured. So all you have to remember from that is the significance of the self-interaction. So I grabbed onto that when everybody was saying, oh, the self-interaction can't possibly be important. You can pretend it's not there. You don't need to include it in your equations. And I had my whole research group basically studying this for the last five years. And now people cite our papers that show that the self-interaction is significant. I think when you're socially located the way that I am, and you're a public scholar in the ways that I am, and you're an advocate who's not afraid to cuss and tell people they're wrong, <laughs> that your science has to be sharp. Because people will come for you. And so that's not to say I wasn't strategic, but that also I felt comfortable following my scientific nose. And I didn't worry so much that other people weren't having the same thoughts as me. So that was a really long answer. <laughs> I think the long history uh, of these kinds of things um, demand long answers. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, I think long answers are inevitable because that's probably still a very, very short answer to <laughs> very, very long-standing problems. Esther asked if Chanda could explain to students how studying science was a means of understanding not only the physical world, but also the social and political world. It's a question Chanda has thought about extensively. So I will say one of the things that I reflect on tonight is the difference in the lives that college students of today lead simply by virtue of being post 9-11, because 9-11 happened um, at the start of my junior year of college. And also when I went to college, we knew that we were concerned about the environment but my generation had really, I'm an old millennial. I'm a zennial, I guess. I'm like that weird in-between group that nobody knows what to do with. Um, we were told reduce, reuse, recycle. There's a hole in the ozone. Just don't use um, PFCs or whatever it was, and it'll be fine, basically. And we didn't... We were also at the end of the Cold War, and so there was the anxiety about nuclear catastrophe. I don't think that that anxiety matches the one that you all have to live with, in my view. I've been thinking a lot about how that makes it very difficult to be like, yeah, let me just think about what's cool in the universe, right? Because you're like, my whole way of existence is constantly under threat. And this is especially true if you are a student of color, it's especially true if you are a queer student. Um, 
that your whole existence is under threat in a lot of different ways. And frankly, I hope this doesn't come off wrong. That's a terrible way to go to college. That's not, that's not what I want for my students is what I will say is I want my students to walk into my classroom and be like, F yeah, mm -hmm. stellar nucleosynthesis. Here's Nina, a student who wanted to know how best to combine the study of technology with the study of the humanities. As a computer science student, and Ella, Isaac, and Abigail were all studying computer science, and Jasper is studying biology, like, what interdisciplinary, like, approaches can there be in our fields, similar to how you've kind of created these interdisciplinary approaches towards physics? I mean, so I think the amazing thing is, is that we're in a moment where there are a lot of different people thinking about these intersections, right? And I actually think for those of you who are learning computer science type skills, this is a particularly important moment because there are going to be a lot of ethical questions before you, and you're already thinking about those questions, I'm sure. And this is also true for the bio people because those, place, those two things are going to meet in biotechnology. Oppenheimer is a great example of what happens when scientists are only accountable to each other and to the establishment and are not accountable to the people on the other side of the bomb, on the other side of the land removal. And, and the Oppenheimer film doesn't really grapple with what happened to the people whose land was desecrated. Chanda said this concept is particularly important for those working with large learning models, technology that many people are referring to as artificial intelligence. Those who are interested in creating a class of objects, creatures, whatever you want to call them, who can do work for free without the ethical considerations of slavery, I think are interested in slavery. That's my perspective on it. They are interested in how to construct a slave class that they don't have to be accountable to in the way that people were eventually pressured to be accountable to enslaved folks in the Americas and beyond. I think I understand that some people will feel that that's a really strong statement, but you have to ask, what are you looking for when you look for that perpetual motion machine who will do things that I tell them to do without me ever having to think about the impact on anybody else but myself? That was the setup of chattel slavery. That was what they were looking for. And so the question that I want everyone to be asking themselves is, am I sure that we as a society have moved on from that search? And I think, you know, I guess I, this is one of the reasons that they think that we're all indoctrinating the students with critical race theory, because I actually think what I've just done is taken a critical race theory lens and applied it to the dialogue about what these computer programs and eventually robots that may be paired with these computer programs should be doing. How, what is their role? What is their purpose? How do we build them? Who do we build them for? Um, and what do we do when they reach the moment of, of crossing over into sentience? Or will we understand what that moment actually looks like? Betsy noted that this is about labor too. Once labor is connected to sentience, that's the only uh, form that we will respect the labor. Uh, we don't respect labor that is not connected to what we believe to be sentient. Power dynamics reminded Esther of a key theme in Chanda's book. 
There are always all sorts of ways in which power is constructed, the way it circulates, the way it operates, the way that it um, compels certain sorts of contortions, if you will. But you talk about power in a really compelling way. I was very interested in thinking through how do power relations work in science and how do those power relations within science structure the power relations between science as a community and a practice and the broader world and other communities? We talk about power dynamics in the classroom. Ostensibly, the professor is the most powerful person in the classroom, regardless of who the professor is. But the structure of the power relations in the room are shaped by are you a black professor in a room with mostly white students? Mm -hmm. Are you a genderqueer professor in mm -hmm. a room that's mostly het cis students? Mm -hmm. um, that those students can enact levers of power over you, mm -hmm. even as they are, quote, just the students and you are the actual professor. Mm -hmm. And so I think thinking about power can help us understand where the power is located in that room and helps us to think about, for example, what power does the professor have? That becomes a much more interesting question than saying the professor is privileged or saying the white Hetzis student is privileged, but rather to say, what are the levers of power available to that person and what are the levers of power available to this other person? One teacher gave Chanda an encouraging nudge into the sciences, which we may refer to as Chanda's physicist origin story. I was lucky I had a black science teacher. That was my first science teacher, which is highly unusual. Um, Mr. Frank Wilson, an amazing man. And he told my mom I seemed to like it. So my mom took me to see this documentary about Stephen Hawking called A Brief History of Time by Errol Morris. Mm -hmm. And it meant I had to miss Saturday morning cartoons, which I realized <laughs> younger people, that may not even be a thing because you all have streaming. But we actually had to be in front of the TV at a specific yeah. time. So this actually meant I missed X-Men. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm just saying. It meant I literally, and there was no getting it back. <laughs> I, my mom took me to see this documentary. She had to drag me. I didn't want to go. And then halfway through, Stephen Hawking was talking about figuring out what happens to space-time at the center of a black hole, and that this was something that Einstein hadn't worked out, and that this was his job. And I was like, yo, you can get paid to do math all day. That was number one. You can get paid to do math all day. And that math mysteriously describes the universe. That's wild. I'm going to do that for the rest of my life. And that, for me, was my aha moment. But I had the opportunity. I mean, like, look, I think back, my mom drove us from East LA to West LA for that. So that was some gas money. And we did it in the morning specifically because she could only afford matinees. That was why I had to miss the Saturday morning cartoons, right? But look, there aren't even matinees anymore, really. Mm -hmm. So what happens? What happens if you know that important documentary is only on Apple TV? And that's the streaming service that everybody in the family uses the least, and you can only pick one. Mm -hmm. I'm, all of the different ways that our socioeconomic and social locations shape are ability to have those moments where we get exposed to the thing that sets our mind on fire, right? Um, even the attacks on libraries and the books that are being removed, they're mm -hmm. specifically removing books because they don't want kids to have that experience. Mm -hmm. Of that moment exactly. of seeing the thing that makes their soul sing mm -hmm. reflected to them in a book, mm -hmm. right? Um, so 
I think that that's what I want. That's the dream, right? And I think that that's the thing that we struggle for. And that's the thing that I hope that students can at least keep five minutes of their day to be like, why did I choose biology? Why did I choose computer science? Um, I like data science, not just because I feel like I have to do it for a job, but because there's something really interesting about the way that machine learning codes are constructed. Mm -hmm. But I want it to be something where you have a, a curious relationship with. And if you end up in a job that doesn't speak to you spiritually in that way, that you end up in a job that gives you the time to pursue those things that do speak to you spiritually. To learn more about Clark University, visit clarku.edu. Challenge Change is produced by Andrew Hart and Melissa Hansen for Clark University. Find other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. One, two, three. Clark! It is a matter of common experience that disorder tends to increase with time if things are left to themselves.